So the book, Impossible Vacation, is about this guy, Brewster North, who finds he can't commit to his girlfriend, Cleo, although they've been together 10 years, until he takes a vacation alone. And just goes off and learns how to hang out like a guy hanging out alone, right? And he, he wants to take this perfect vacation in Bali. And he wants to go to Bali with the money that his mother left him after she committed suicide, which, which was not a lot of money, but it had been in the bank for a long time. This was kind of his only memorial to her was the money in the bank. And it had collected interest. So he's taking that money, and he's trying to go to Bali alone. Right? So the book, Impossible Vacation, begins in Rhode Island, and it ends in Bali. And that's about all you need to know about the book tonight. The monologue I'm going to do is something completely different. The monologue is about all the interruptions that happened to me while I was trying to write the book. In fact, I have to say the monologue you're going to hear tonight is a monologue about a man who can't write a book, about a man who can't take a vacation. Now, as soon as I signed the contract for the book, I decided I wanted to give the monologues up and just write. You know, just go away and write. I, just, I thought the monologues were making me too extroverted. And, you know, perhaps even causing me to panda, you know? And, and I thought that I should go away to a writer's colony and just write the book. Do nothing else, no living, just writing. So I applied to a number of writer's colonies, hoping I'd get accepted. If I got accepted, that would prove that I was a writer. And I did get accepted at one of the best. I was amazed. The McDowell Colony in Peterborough, New Hampshire, where many famous writers have gone, including Thornton Wilder, who wrote that great American classic, Our Town Up There, and model Grover's Corners in the play after Peterborough, New Hampshire. And I get up there, and it's a perfect setup. It couldn't be better. 600 acres of forest and 52 little individual studios or houses. Uh, and I was given my own little house and told that I could do anything in it I wanted, which was incredible for me, having come from New England and returned to a house where I could do anything I wanted. <laughs> A steamy treat there for a while, I have to say. And it was wonderful. You took all your main meals up at the big house and got your phone calls up there. But there was no telephone in your little house. Uh, no one could come and visit you without your permission. Oh, they brought you lunch. Uh, they tiptoed up with a little basket and put it on the steps and tiptoed away like Yogi Bear into the forest, leaving you alone. <laughs> Everything was perfect. The only problem is, actually, the name of my house. It happened to be called The Bates House. <laughs> Named after Nurse Bates, who nursed McDowell in his final stages of syphilis. So needless to say, I was doing all sorts of exorcisms before I got down to the writing. And then I got down to the writing, and I began writing. I was writing the entire book longhand, and I found the whole process to be awful. It's disgusting. I, I, I don't know why I had romanticized writing. I, I, it's like a disease. I mean, it steals your body from you. It's lonely. There's no audience there. It's horrible. I, I mean, I was writing longhand. My knuckle was swelling. I had an arthritic knuckle from the pen pressing against it. I was losing my sight in my left eye while I was writing. I was going blind in my left eye, which was horrible for me because here I was working on all my Oedipal themes. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> There goes the first eye. <laughs> so what do you do after you write for three hours? Four hours if you're lucky, longhand. At the end of four hours, your hand is like a claw. And there's nothing to do but go for a walk in the woods. So I go out with my claw hand into the woods, and I walk, and I walk, and I walk, and I go back to the main house, and I drink, and I drink, and I'd eat, and I'd get up, reread what I wrote, and get up in the morning, and I'd write. And I'd write, and I'd write, and I'd walk, and I'd drink, and I'd eat, and I'd reread what I wrote, and I'd get up, and I'd write, and I'd walk, and I'd drink. And I'd drink, and I'd drink, and I'd drink, and I'd walk, and I'd drink, and I'd drink, and I just wanted to get out of there. I wanted to get out, but I, how could I leave? I was in a privileged position. 
you know, how could I walk away from that? You know, something larger than me had to happen. Like someone had to have a heart attack. <laughs> Who would it be? <laughs> at last, I get a message up at the main house uh, saying that the Mark Taper Forum wants me to come out to Los Angeles, the Mark Taper Forum Theater. Around the time that I did the contract for the book, I also did a deal with the Mark Taper Forum Theater in Los Angeles that I never thought would come through. They wanted to apply to the National Endowment for the Arts. This is back in the old days when they were doing wild and crazy things like that. <laughs> they wanted to apply to the NEA to have me in residence in the Mark Taper Forum Theater for a year, and I would just hang out in Los Angeles. This was the idea. Just hang out, riding the buses of L.A., finding interesting people, or trying to find interesting people, to bring up to interview on stage about living in Los Angeles. Now, the only criterion being that these people I chose could in no way be involved in the film industry. And the project was to be called L.A. The Other. So I get a message up at the main house in the McDowell Colony saying the grant came through and I must move out. So I think, great, that's a great excuse to leave. I'll take my monster with me. I'll work on the book in the morning. I'll look for L.A. the other in the afternoon. Kill a few birds. So they relocate Renee and I. They find a little a bungalow for us in the Hollywood Hills. And we move out there. And I immediately I like it because I discover something I never knew I was missing in my life. It's fantastic. A view. In New York City, I look out at a tar paper roof in another building. In the McDowell Colony, I looked out at a bush. But here in Los Angeles, I'd wake up in the morning and look out our bedroom window, and there, 20 miles in the distance, a snow-capped mountain, a mountain by a city, Mount Baldy, when you could see it the seven clear days of the year. And the sun would come trumpeting up over Mount Baldy at 6.15 in the morning, you know, and we'd wake up to the smell of flowers and the sound of birds and wind chimes. And I'd run across to my desk and open my book, my monster, and to begin working on it, you know, and I'd feel the sunshine come across my writer's hand and relax it. And I'd get up and follow the sun around into the living room and have a cup of coffee and watch the sun come through the palm trees and have another cup of coffee and watch the sun come through the cypress trees and follow the sun around into the dining room and watch the sun come through the dining room window and have a martini. <laughs> and watch the sun go down over Sunset Strip and have another martini. Why go out? Why bother? Why work on a book? The only thing to get me out of the house was, was my assistant, K.O., hired by the Mark Taper Forum to take me around looking for L.A. the other. There's no way I was going to ride the buses. They come every five hours. <laughs> so K.O. pulls up, redhead, Southern California, a freckled gal, pulls up in her fastback red Ford to take me out looking for L.A. Look, I had no idea how difficult it would be to find people not involved in the film industry until I got out there. And I saw a television special in which they were interviewing people as they came out of the supermarket and running up to them and going, Hi, good morning. Tell us. How's your film script going? Everyone went, what? How did you know? Right up to the cashier. So we, we begin to go on our search for L.A. the other. I don't know to, where to tell K.O. to drive. There's no there there. You know, we're going in circles. We're driving down to senior citizen uh, homes. We're speaking to them. Uh, Golden Age drop-in centers. We're driving down to Long Beach to look for Cambodian refugees. We're driving over to Venice Beach to speak to people living in lean-tos. We're driving uh, downtown L.A. I'm looking down every side street. Nothing. No one. Nothing. No one. Nothing. No one. Oh, wait. Kale, slow down. Slow down. I just saw a bunch of people living in refrigerator cartons down there. 
She goes, nothing going on down there, dude. I said, K.O., I know I saw people. Look, would you slow down, please? Why don't you just pull the car over and park and we'll walk back and hang out for a bit. Have you ever done that before? Just parked and walked? <laughs> that was the day I realized that my assistant K.O. had what I would call a 35-mile-an-hour consciousness. <laughs> Nothing under 35 miles an hour registers on her retinas, really. She has been on wheels since the day she was born. You know, she started with the baby carriage, went to the roller skates, went to the skateboard. Now she's in the car and she's headed for the wheelchair. No one walks in Los Angeles. It's an old story, but I'll tell it again. No one walks in Los Angeles. No, no one walked in my neighborhood. How could they? There were no sidewalks. I was the only one that walked in the street dodging cars. I never saw any of my neighbors on their front lawns. I never heard any sounds coming out of their houses. I just saw their houses and heard birds and wind chimes. It was like a neutron bomb had hit and left birds and wind chimes. <laughs> the only time I ever saw anyone in my neighborhood was rounding the corner in the street and looking. I saw some school books thrown down in the gutter with a belt around them. And there the owner of the books were. On the side of the street, a Mexican-American, boy and girls, you know, high school kids making passionate love on the side of the street. You know, I stood over them for a while and watched. They were French kissing. They paid me no heed. I thought, what better place if you want to be alone in Los Angeles? <laughs> so I'm up and I'm working on a monster. I'm able to work on the book and I'm right up to here. I'm right up to this section where the character, the character is trying to help his mother through a severe nervous breakdown. It's the summer of 1966. And she's having a very difficult time, and he wants to help her through it. At the same time, he knows that he must flee the nest. He must get away from home, or he'll never have a life of his own. He'll be sucked down by it all. And he wants a life of his own. He wants to become an actor. And he wants to get his equity card at the Allen.